Good evening, everyone. Broadcasting live May 29th. Tonight's quote is simple enough. It's got a couple of parts to it. The Buddha says, those who you have sympathy for, right? those who are who you uh, you are sympathetic towards, those who are family or friends or loved ones, those who you know are in need of support and help. And here he gets the translation wrong. means those who think it worth think it worth listening to. Think you worth listening to, maybe. Those who consider those who consider Those who consider, who would think to listen, those who think to listen. I'm not quite sure about that myself. It's either those who think to listen or those who you think, but it's not that, is it? Those who would listen, those who will listen. Those people who you think will listen, who care for, who, those who listen to you, those who think you're worth listening to. Not everyone is like that, of course. The point being here, some people you care about, but they won't listen. It can be your parents. Sometimes it's very hard to give any advice to your parents, of course. Mitta wa amatta wa nyati wa salohita wa Whether they be a friend or colleague, a relative, or salohita is also a relative. And the word nyati is Huh, maybe it just means nyati usually means relative. Could just be but nyati maybe doesn't mean by blood. Nyati could just mean uh, hmm. nyati wa salohita wa just a relative. All of these people, these people who you are your friends, who you care for. And who you think will listen to you? Something you should do. Te bikwe chatu susota patiangesu samada petaba niwe setaba parti parti tha petaba 
there are four things that they should be established in, that they should be set in, that they should be made made accomplished, made to be accomplished in, brought to fulfillment in. The four sotapatiyangisu, the four sotapatiyanga, the four factors or four factors involving stream entry, involved in or in regards to. He's saying if you love someone, if you care for someone, what's the best thing you can do for them? Establish them in four things. Basically, bring them to. It's not clear whether he's saying you should teach them to practice or help them to practice to become a sotapanna, or just help them with four things that are like a sotapanna. A sotapanna is someone who has seen nibbana or nirvana for the first time, someone who you can call enlightened. So, there are four factors. So the first part of this quote is is how you should help someone. What is what is the best thing you can do for someone? If you care for them, what can you give to them? The second part explains what those four things are. I just wanted to sort of pause on this idea of guiding people to your religion because it must sound it, it should sound quite familiar. This is the kind of thing every religion tells you to do. If you care for someone, convert them. Convert them to our religion. So I think it's something that people are wary of, this idea of trying to convert your family and any religion that encourages you to go out and convert everyone. It's an interesting concept because every religion, uh, most religions talk about it, you know, I would say Judaism, maybe not so much as one of the major, major religions. But Christianity, definitely, I think Islam to some extent. But there's an idea of, of encouraging your family to practice, encouraging others. I think it's a natural inclination for any spiritual or religious practitioner uh, because religion tends to make you happy. Not always, but for, for the for, for the majority, I would say religion provides, as I think Mao Zedong said, an opiate. Makes you feel good. Being in that community and having such a lofty mind state of faith and devotion. No matter what it's for, these states are pleasant and you could say exalted in the sense of having a power to them, having a composure to them. The mind that is focused on religion of any kind is, tends to be fairly focused and powerful and as a result, uh, pleasant, enjoyable, peaceful, sublime, exalted, all these things. Now when that comes, humans are beings are interesting in this way that we we don't at the very core distinguish between self and others this is 
this is why uh, when we see someone else hurting it it affects us now it's possible to ignore this and it's possible to lose this sort of sense of uh, desire to see other beings happy and, and desire for them not to be in suffering and so we can pervert that and we often do and even as humans we can be cruel to others but we do this through delusion this is a, a religious person buddhist or otherwise tends to have a more refined mindset not always of course but tends to have a sense or tends to be able to tap into these mind states uh, of compassion and a desire for the benefit of others and I think to be charitable that's part of the reason why people religious people want to share their religion because they feel such happiness and they want others to be happy at least those who they care for right Anukampaya Anukampayata those who you those who you care for, who you're sympathetic towards, want them to be happy, if no one else. So I wouldn't say that's wrong. I wouldn't say proselytism is wrong. The problem is, if you're deluded and if you're following a path that is problematic, then encouraging others to follow it may not be in the long run the wisest. It may actually be causing more harm than good. This is the problem. Because if your religion is based on uh, false premises or shaky premises, blind faith, then it might be right, it might be wrong. But if you don't have good reason to believe that it's right, and often this is the case, we go by feelings, we go by... Uh, belief, view, we don't go by evidence so much. It's very dangerous. You could be leading everybody to the edge of the cliff. So I think that's important to say. I think religion as, as a concept is a very powerful thing and has a potential for great good. And leading other people to religion, I think, has the potential for great good. And I think it does bring great good in most religions. I think Christianity, when, when practiced properly, brings great good to society. It cultivates good people. I mean, there's so much bad, of course, that we could point to. But there's so much bad in Buddhism as well that we could point to in, in Buddhist societies. But overall, in general, there's a lot of good that comes from, uh, from well, from this basic religious uh, act of, of cultivation and and sharing, you know, bringing it to others. So I think that's an interesting thing for us to consider when we think about uh, our practice and those who we care about. There was uh, one monk who once said, he was listening to a talk and he heard. He said, "Someone once told me that, well, I practice Buddhism, but I wouldn't. I, I don't want to, you know, push it on my children. I'll let them make up their own mind." And he said, "How irresponsible of you! 
it's you, you know you believe that what the Buddha said was right. You believe these teachings, and for for you they are they are they are right. Why don't you teach your children what is right? Are you going to let them fall in fall into the wrong path? And that sort of comes to the point of that, sim you know, simply teaching people about religion or bringing people closer to religion, uh, whatever religion, is not really enough. The important point is the sort of the second half, what it actually means to, or what is it actually that you're bringing people to? Because you bring people closer to the belief that Jesus is the only path to heaven, or if you're for a Muslim, is you're going to paradise, or this kind of thing. You're not really, really doing much of a favor, and it's it's on very shaky ground. There's no reason behind it. With Buddhism, it's talking about faith as well. And again, I think faith is, in Buddhism, faith is considered to be a good thing. Faith in Jesus is a positive mind state. Faith in a snowman is a... Faith in Santa Claus is a, a wholesome mind state. In the sense that, to the extent that faith is powerful. It creates a, a state of mind that is uh, sublime and, and focused and calm. Now, as I've said, as I've repeated, you know, the, the the delusion behind Santa Claus or Jesus, or all these things, from a Buddhist point of view, is 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 unwholesome and problematic. But the actual moments of faith. So in Buddhism. We try to find and, and we, we consider and we focus on things that are worth having faith in. And we make a claim that there are things that it's worth having faith in. And we explain that there are actually two kinds of faith. You can have faith based on um, faith based on a supposition or, or, or a uh, based on evidence which which is different from proof so evidence can be it's usually insufficient evidence is is a sort of a partial knowledge evidence can be uh, the way someone acts you walk, you see the buddha walking down this walking into the village and you get great faith in him you think he must be enlightened because there's evidence What's the evidence? Well, his composure, his behavior. And then you hear the Buddha give a talk, and you get more faith because you have more evidence. It's not proof, but all of that is evidence. It's usually not enough to make a conclusion. You could still be very, very much be wrong, but there's a sense that that's a good thing. And it, of course, better the more evidence you have. Um, there's a sense that it's good to have faith in the Buddha whether you have an, a lot of evidence or not. It's funny because it's just by chance. You've, you've happened to put your faith in the right thing. 
It's like if you, uh, if you if you choose an airline, you put your faith in in one airline. Well, maybe you just pick and choose an airline, and it happens to be a good one. Or you pick and choose an airline, and it happens to be the wrong airline, and you get in a plane crash because the airplanes are not good. And you put your faith in something. If you pick the right one, you're lucky. It's funny, you know, we were talking about this, I think, today, about how uh, all it takes is to be born into the wrong religion. If you uh, good people, we were talking about good people who, uh, by virtue of being born into a religion that says killing is okay or, or drugs and alcohol are okay, Good people can can get on very much on the wrong path. They may have great goodness inside, but based on their views, based on their culture and their religion, they get on the wrong path. So there's that, but that you know should be taken with a grain of salt, of course, because you don't know and it could very much be wrong. So it's good if people have faith in the Buddha, but it's probably not wise. It's, uh, and it certainly isn't, some, isn't how you could sell Buddhism. Yeah, the Buddha was the best, so just believe that he was the best. For most people, that's not nearly enough, and, and rightly it shouldn't, because they have no reason to believe it. So we have this other kind of faith, and that's based on... on based on proof and proof is proof is something that science doesn't like to talk about right? it's something that science is very afraid of rightly so because people think they have proof of something and you can't easily prove anything you can only provide evidence and if you have overwhelming evidence then you have no reason to doubt but you still don't have it's very hard to find proof of pretty much anything. Except the interesting thing we would argue is that from a first person point of view, you can find proof in a lot of different a lot of things. Proof is actually fairly easy to find. So if I give you an, a simple example, does seeing exist? See, science doesn't talk about things like seeing. It talks about light and the eye and the brain. And so if I asked you instead, do you see me? Do you see this, this person? You could, say, you could say, yes, I see you. And I said, but do you have proof? You'd have to say no. You don't have proof. I could be just some machine-generated code made to look like a human being very convincingly. I could be wearing a mask that I'll suddenly pull off or something. So you can't prove that you're seeing. And this is important. This is, this is essential in, in terms of Buddhism and understanding what is real. Because you can't deny that you're seeing. You can argue that you're not seeing what you think you're seeing. You can argue that it's not a real thing that you're seeing. 
Oh, seeing is seeing. There's nothing else it possibly could be. Seeing exists. Hearing exists. Smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking exists. Basically, if you want to argue, you could nitpick and say, well, how do, you know, what's the difference between these senses? And in the end, it probably doesn't come down to any real difference. But what is real, what definitely exists, is experience. You have proof. Why? Because you have experience. No one can deny the existence of experience. It couldn't be anything else. It's what Descartes came to. He said, suppose there's a... Uh, suppose instead of a benevolent god, there is a, a malevolent uh, demon tricking us. What is the one thing that this this malevolent creator being couldn't trick us into? He couldn't trick us about the fact that we're experiencing. Because you have to experience in order to be tricked. Cogito ergo sum, he said. I think, therefore, I am. There is the thinking. What he was focusing on is the fact that, that the thinking exists. There is something that exists. I'm not nothing. Because I think. So that's just a simple example. I mean, that's really... But it's... And it seems, it seems banal. It seems perhaps useless. But it's actually essential because that is the, then the framework for understanding reality. You can't base your framework of understanding reality on concepts, on people, places, things. Anything that modern material science focuses on cannot help you to understand reality. Because it's not based on reality. It's based on conjecture in the mind. It's based on mental activity that you can't you can't prove that this universe exists. Science doesn't ever try to prove anything for that reason. But the reason why is because it's not real. It's abstract. The only thing that's real and that you can prove exists is experience. But, but it, it's a good example because it shows that from a first-person point of view, you can start to prove things. And you can prove a lot by seeing how things work. You can see cause and effect. Although cause and effect you can't prove. Um, not exactly, because who knows if it, maybe it just will change. But, but what you can do, and this gets back to our quote, is you can prove to yourself beyond reasonable doubt. Uh, about things like cause and effect. Now, this isn't actually the, the, the important proof, but uh, practically speaking, it's enough. So when you practice meditation, you start by finding the right framework. You start by understanding, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, thinking, body and mind as being the basis of reality. 
that's important. It's important to see that, to make that realization. As you go on, what you're doing is uh, you're starting to see cause and effect. And eventually you see cause and effect so clearly that you just, you, you accept it without proof. But you accept it because, you know, if you see the same thing, this is how science works, if you see the same thing again and again and again, it's enough evidence to be overwhelming. And in, in this instance, you don't exactly need proof, you just need to see it enough so that your mind, uh, your mind appreciates, your mind accepts it. Yes, it must be like this. Because at that point, the mind shifts and the mind lets go. It sees more than cause and effect, it sees impermanent suffering and non-self. It sees that all these things that we cling to, trying to fix them, trying to keep them, trying to make them our, our slave, our servant, amenable to our control. All of these things are impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable. When you get that, when you appreciate that, you, you say, there's nothing. It's like a bird when looking through the tree for fruit. It looks everywhere. As long as it thinks there's still fruit in the tree, it won't fly away. So as long as the mind is looking for something, you know, when you're meditating, well, this is no good, but you know, maybe if I practice this way, maybe if I switch, you're still looking for something to satisfy. The mind is still looking for pleasure, something that will make me happy. Until finally it, the mind gives up, without proof, but, but with enough evidence to make to convince the mind that there's nothing. There really is nothing. At that moment, the mind lets go. And when the mind lets go, there's an experience of cessation, what we call nirvana or nibbana. And that experience is proof. That's the experience that makes one a sotapanna. That, that literally is exactly what makes one a sotapanna. Nothing else. You can't just become a sotapanna by reading the Buddha's teaching or appreciating it or having faith in the Buddha, for example. A sotapanna is only one thing. They've realized nibbana, nirvana. But there are four qualities that come from becoming a sotapanna. That's what the Buddha says here. It's the second part of our quote. He says the first one is that they have buddhe avecapasade, pasada. They have unshakable faith in the Buddha. In what way? And then it's Itipiso Bhagava, this, this very well-known chant. Indeed, he is the, the Bhagava, the lucky one, the blessed one. And then there's all the, what the Buddha is. They have perfect faith in the Buddha. They, they, they realize that he's telling the truth. They realize that he has taught the truth. So they have perfect faith in him because they hear him saying things that they know for themselves, that they've seen for themselves. Dhammi avidya pasadena, pasadena, pasadena. They have, number two, they have unwavering faith in the Dhamma. And this one is, is more direct. This is like uh, if you look at a map, 
and you see that the map leads to the right direction, you say, oh, I've been there, and you can confirm that the map heads in the right direction, leads you out of the forest, then you have perfect faith in that map. You don't need to have faith in it, and you don't even have to call it faith, but you, you're, you're completely sure what that map is telling you. Why? Because you've been there. You know for yourself. So when you read the Dhamma, when you listen to the Dhamma, a person who has attained Sodapana has perfect faith in it. Because they they know it for themselves. Sange pasadena samana. Aveja pasadena. Sange aveja pasadena. Perfect faith in the Sangha. This is in people who have practiced. So if someone, this is, this is probably more theoretical than anything, meaning uh, they, they understand that a person who has attained Nibbana is, is enlightened, is, is worthy of respect, has attained something special because they themselves have attained it. So they have, they, they can, because they don't know whether a person is the Sangha or not. It's not like they have faith in people. That's not what it means. But they have faith in uh, someone, in the idea that someone who has attained Nibbana is, is worth appreciating. And number four, Arya Kante Susile Susamada Pitaba. If you care for these people, so this is the things you should establish. So an, an enlightened being is established in sila, morality or ethical behavior, ethics, that is dear to the noble ones, Arya Kanta. What that means is the five precepts. Asotapana is intent upon keeping the five precepts. They don't kill, they don't steal, they don't cheat, they don't lie, they don't take drugs or alcohol. So these are the four things that we, the Buddha says we should give if you want. And, and you could look at this more. People, when they come to meditate, they want to give these things to others. It becomes quite important for them. And during the course, they think they start to think of all their loved ones, and they wish to to share it with them. And so, it, it, it is useful teaching to think about. I mean, it's useful for us to understand where we're going, but it's also useful for us to understand what we should do to share with others. It, it may seem somewhat uh, secondary to the meditation practice, but I don't think it should be seen that way. If you don't help others, if you don't change the people around you, uh, if you don't, if you can't succeed in that, well, if you ignore and just keep to yourself, it makes it more difficult to practice. I mean, I think that's quite obvious. You're surrounded by people who aren't meditating, who aren't interested in meditating, who don't appreciate Buddhism and the Buddhist teaching, and who don't have Aryakanta. If they don't have if their ethics are not dear to the noble ones. They kill, they steal, they cheat, they lie, they take drugs and alcohol. It's difficult to be around them. Or it's difficult to keep your mindfulness when you're around them. So the best way is not to always run away from people. That's one way. Some people go and live in the forest because they can't stand all these crazy people. 
But another way is to just help people, surround yourself with good people. Problem here, and this goes back to the crucial part of the first, the first part of the quote, has to be people who will listen. And it, it's funny how that you know, those aren't always the people you think they are. Sometimes you have to change the people you, you associate with. Your friends change. When I think back to all my friends when I was younger, it was probably the ones who I alienated, who would have been, you know, I would have most gotten along with now. And those who I, uh, those who I was very close friends with, I ended up uh, alienating them once I became a Buddhist, because it turned out that our uh, our reasons for being friends was not was what it was. Not all it was. Uh, but not in line with goodness. No. So for all of us, that's di it's different. But it, it's uh, it's you have to, it has to be the people who will listen. If you're going to share with people, if you care about people, and if they if they care about you, and if they appreciate you, and if they think you're worth listening to, this is what you should give to them. So we can take this as as advice in that regard, but most importantly for ourselves, we should take this as a reminder of what's important for us, what's important for us to attain. We are to gain uh, perfect confidence in what we're doing. Where are we headed? We're headed to, to have to gain proof proof about something, to be able to, something that we can hold on to in the sense of, of something that is stable, is sure, is certain, is permanent, really. It's not going to change, it's not going to waver. And that reality is based on experience, that everything is in this world is impermanent, that's permanent. Uh, and the cessation of suffering, this experience of cessation, the letting go, and the, the freedom, the peace, the silence of Nibbana. So anyway, that's our quote for tonight. Looks like we got a bunch of questions, so we can scroll through them. It's okay to ask questions, but if they're too off-topic, Bhante may call you out on it. I may. I'm good at scaring people, I think. I bet there's lots of people who would ask questions, but they're scared I'm going to call them out on it. <laughs> I think that's okay, though. Okay, if you want, question, if you want to post questions, please use the question mark. helps us. You said you're looking for a steward. Steward. It's spelled S-T-E-W-A-R-D. We're not looking for a steward. But we are looking for a steward. Aruna has left. We're hoping that, well, he's hoping to get a job soon. Haven't heard back, but assuming he's getting a full-time job with a high-paying salary. So 
So he's doing well for himself, it sounds like, which is good to hear. Uh, but he's gone, been gone for a while. Michael is here now, but he's leaving. He's leaving when I leave, so or just after I leave, which is in a few days. And so we'll see. Yeah, if if there's someone out there who would like to come and be our steward, uh, it would be it would be much appreciated. On that note. We're always looking for volunteers, online volunteers, for those of you who are far away but would like to get involved with the organization. We can always use more people to do online things. You know, there's things that can be organized, many different kinds of things that we do. We have a, an online uh, organization group where we have, uh, we chat and we, we have a, a platform, we use Slack, uh, to organize and so we talk about all sorts of things the website the graphics we talk about photos we talk about meditators coming the big one recently is rental we've been talking about buying uh, renting a new place with more room for meditators so that kind of thing if you want to get involved let us know Here, Austin says he would like to. Austin wants to get involved. Hmm, here I am talking about it. Robin's already ahead of me, as usual. So, yeah, she'll get you connected there. Okay, a couple of questions. I have been meditating for many months. I don't feel the abdomen rise and fall. My abdomen feels tense, and in general, I feel stressed. For the duration of the meditation, I'm mainly noting my emotions and physical sensation because they are most prevalent. You should try to get to the breath. I mean, the fact that your stomach is not moving, and as you say, it's it's due to tension. So the tense feeling is something you should note. Uh, if you feel tense, you should say to yourself, tense, tense, and then look for the rising and falling again. You'll find if you do that enough, you'll start to relax. Uh, try doing lying meditation. Lie down on your back. Don't don't make a habit of this, but, but do an experiment. Lie down on your back and then watch the stomach rise and fall. Then you'll realize how prevalent it is, how coarse this object really is, how obvious and how clear it is. And so this was, would have been you know easier for people who are living in the forest, monks, you know, who live... Uh, peaceful lives, we don't have all this stress that people in the world have. And so it is a bit of a problem when we try to give this to people who are very stressed. But the thing is, you'll find if you keep with it, after some time, you, you relax, and it'll come to you. Don't give up on it. It's really just because you're, you're stressed. You'll, there, there'll be a point where suddenly your breath will shift, you'll feel it, and suddenly it I mean, maybe not exactly like that, but it'll get easier. If you need, you can put your hand on your stomach. That can also help in the beginning. But there's, it's a really a great object because it's not permanent, it's not satisfying, and it's not controllable. And so it's teaching you. The tension is also teaching you something. It's teaching you that you can't force it. Just watching the stomach is such a great thing. It's such a great object because it'll rule you, you know, it really rocks you. It seems such a simple thing. Well, of course I can watch my stomach 
No, you can't. No, it'll mess you up. It'll shake your foundations of what you believe in about the world. It's a very profound object of contemplation. Because it's not permanent. It's not it's not predictable. It's not satisfying. You can't make it calm and smooth. It's not controllable. You can't force it to be long or short or whatever. It just makes you suffer more. So don't give up the abdomen. It's a great object of meditation. Is it is it right to view suffering as beneficial to the extent it teaches nudges toward the right view? If there's no suffering, would there be no need to seek out, refine the right view over and over again? Well, everything that arises is dukkha. So, but if you're talking about painful or, or something that is dukkha vedana, like everything, everything that arises is is dukkha in the sense of unsatisfying, not a cause of happiness. You know, not not a source that you can hold on to it and say this is going to make me happy. But if you're talking about, is it good to be in pain? You know, is it good to meditate? You know, is meditation in pain? It actually is generally considered to be a good thing because it's much easier to let go and it's much more challenging. So it really forces you to let go. Uh, so, so people who are sick, people who are in pain uh, tend to be pretty good, pretty quick to let go and often have a better time. People when they're dying, when you die, when you're dying, it's a common thing to let go because there's much less clinging, right? There's much less to cling to. You don't want to stay alive. You don't want to be here. Of course, that can lead to aversion, which is not good and equally problematic. But uh, traditionally, it's considered to be easier when you're suffering pain. Now, of course, that wouldn't that wouldn't include self-inflicted pain, because if you're inflicting pain upon yourself, you're all messed up. And that also touches on your your question. You're asking whether suffering is beneficial. Anyone who thinks suffering is beneficial, uh, you know, has an intrinsic goodness to it. That's the problem. So if you if you hurt yourself, thinking that that's going to help you, the act of hurting yourself and thinking that it's beneficial is problematic. That's going to that's going to take you away from stuff, away from Nibbana, because you no longer want to be happy. You want to hurt yourself. There's a fine line there. You have to, and it's, it's an easy one to see, because it's about bearing with suffering. When there's suffering, and you can't change it, it's a great tool. It helps you let go. The meditator begins to see reality clearly. They come to see that what they thought was reality is not actually real at all, it is conceptual. Can this ever happen too quickly, leaving the meditator overwhelmed or it's destabilized or on a psychological level? No. No. No, because it simplifies things. Um, it it can shake you up. I mean, it, it just it disturbs you. But 
this isn't, you know, this is so different from most types of meditation that have the great potential to drive you crazy because they're conceptual. There's nothing to hold on to, right? In, uh, to some extent, in this meditation, there is something to hold on to. Like, like with concepts, you can hold on to the concept, but it can quickly shift. It can quickly change into something else. It's not real, so it can become anything. And so it take, drives you further and further. And if you're not careful, if you're not uh, controlled with it, you can get into real trouble. With, with Vipassana, sure, there's nothing to hold on to. Everything's impermanent, but you can depend upon that. You can depend upon the fact that it's always going to be the same. There's nothing weird. There's nothing exotic. Everything is very mundane, very simple. And all you're doing is learning to let go. It's not, this isn't the kind of meditation that is dangerous. It's a lot safer. If we just talk about safety and, and whether meditators in this tradition go crazy. Sure, you can go crazy because you don't practice what you're told. You, you know, you're doing, practicing crazy stuff. But practicing this meditation is very, very much safer than, say, samatha meditation. Samatha meditation is usually safe if done in a Buddhist way. But the general conceptual-based meditation has, pro has uh, dangers to it, especially if done without a teacher. Yeah, if you, if you inflict suffering on yourself, I suppose you could argue that there's going to be wholesome states in there, a great potential. And you could argue that those six years of torturing themselves was, was eye-opening and uh, help them to let go of it probably prepared them to become enlightened pretty quickly you know there's got to be some good to it you know he said it was completely useless it would never have led to enlightenment but uh, understanding pain i mean any any experience that helps you understand reality understand the, what's possible you know, is is somehow roundaboutly beneficial and so I would argue that there's probably moments, you know, when you inflict suffering on yourself, that's really problematic because it, it messes with your view. But the moments when you're just dealing with the pain, it, it deals with, it cultivates patience. Like these guys, if you talk about all of us, you know, sitting in meditation for a half an hour or an hour, it's very stressful for most of us. These guys are like, no problem, I'll sit still all day. And great patience from it, you know. So there would be great benefit to that. So I could argue that there would, could still be good come from hurting yourself. It's just that it's very much outweighed by the fact that you're hurting yourself, that you're intentionally inflicting pain upon yourself. Okay, I've been here long enough. And there weren't that many questions after all. So I'm going to say goodnight. Lots of oranges tonight. Those of you who are orange, it means you, you didn't meditate with us. And if you didn't meditate with us, I'm less inclined to answer your questions. Green means you meditated with us in the past three hours. So not enough greens. I'm going to say goodnight. Good night, everyone.